Welcome to the Resilient Training Lab Podcast. <laughs> like the most interesting shit is always said when we're not recording. Yeah. I wasn't actually sure if you guys were already recording or not. So I was just hoping that like I wasn't saying anything too weird. <laughs> no, I'll just have to YouTube octopuses later. Octopi. Yeah. Uh, it actually, since it's Greek, it does not have to be octopi. Octopuses is actually uh, appropriate. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. It's one of those scenarios where, like, people are going to think you're wrong, but you're actually right. Yes. And then you make them feel stupid because you tell them, like, you can tell them it's a Greek base. It's not a Latin base. <laughs> but it's crazy. There are two different evolutionary pathways, and they both created brains. Yeah. That's awesome. It's uh, it's very unique. I'll have to, I'll have to look at that book. There's another book, because um, um, I'm a psychologist, I was a psychology major. There's another book that talks about how, their anxiety is related to our anxiety and how studying octopuses can help us understand human anxiety. But I can't remember what that one's called. Yeah. And there's, when you study them, they're like, like there's like a bunch of stories of like octopuses, like squirting water at the lights to turn the lights off and like yeah. experiments and stuff. Yep. They're like very aware of what's going on. Yeah. They don't want to, <laughs> they don't want to be messed with. That's for sure. <laughs> that's really cool. Ryan's like, I, I didn't even watch this. Watch an octopus. <laughs> He's like, never mind on the podcast. I'm going to research. <laughs> Sounds like they're more aware than some of the drivers on the way home. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> well, they have to be there. They don't have any really defense mechanism. They have to outsmart everybody. Their whole body is soft. So it's not like yeah. they have like an armor to protect them. So they pick their fights very, uh, very carefully. So then what's the deal with the ink? That's uh, their- that's how they get away. Yeah, it's not It's not even like, it's not all venomous. Like some of them are, but most of the time it's just a distraction so they can leave. Yeah, because they're so fast. They just like spray the ink so they can't see and like dip out. Yep. <laughs> yep. And they're camouflage, most of them, so they can just go hide somewhere. Yeah, they'll like pull shells up with all their arms and cover mm-hmm. themselves in shells and just like slowly roll around so they look like a shell. Yep. Masters of camouflage. Like a big they can Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> they can change their, their color of their skin. It's like photo something, photomagnetic or whatever. Yeah, some insane. way longer <laughs> word that I know. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're welcome for the lesson on octopuses today. <laughs> yeah. But you did bring on bring up the one of the big reasons we wanted to get you on here and get you talking about some stuff that people don't normally talk about around lifting is that you have a background in psychology. Yes, um, that is my thing. And that makes you unique in this field. Why, thank you. <laughs> Are we recording already now? Yeah, I recorded. Okay. <laughs> I hit recorded because, uh, because we were talking about octopuses and it was interesting. Yeah, they're they're the coolest. So sorry for the people that missed out on the first like four minutes of actual coolness, but yeah, but yeah. we got we got a little octopus talking there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can put it at the end in the yeah. outtakes. <laughs> yes, you gotta but capture yeah, people right away to capture their interest. I think. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. It's like it's like marketing one hundred and one. And then we'll intro our ghost uh, octopus connoisseur. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's me. <laughs> so that's Riley. <laughs> yeah. Yes, thank you, Riley, for <laughs> Hello. So thank you for coming on. Thank you guys um, for having me. I'm gonna butcher your last name, so I'll let you say it. <laughs> oh, it's it's Presnell. No one ever yeah. says it right. It's like I the, yeah. the S throws people off. Yeah, it's about Presnell. Presnell. Pre- Presnell. Yep, there you go. Nice. I still can't say Ryan's last name and we've been working together for like a year or so. Don't feel bad. He, he can't say either Ryan's last name. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, is it really that important? No, no. it's probably not. <laughs> I became OG Ryan through yeah. having a complicated last name as well. So. <laughs> yeah, school is not always fun. One, you know, when a teacher, like when you hear Riley, at least when I was younger, uh, people thought it was a boy's name. So teachers would expect like a boy to raise their hand when they're like, oh, Riley. And then they say like Presnell, Presnail, Pres- Presley, Pretzel, pretty much anything else. I've actually been called Pretzel before. And I'm like, that one's kind of cool. You can say that one. 
not, not against that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never met. I may, maybe one like guy named Riley. I, it was I think historically it was a girl's name around me, so that's interesting. Yeah, I had another I had another kid in my class whose name was Riley, and it was a boy, and his name was uh, Riley Robbins, and so his like last our last names were close to each other, so we always sat next to each other. Um, people would always joke and say, "Oh, if you two got married, you'd have the exact same name." And I'm like, "Wow, geniuses! Thank you." <laughs> <laughs> the things kids think about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was exciting for me. <laughs> so, how did you? Because that's interesting, right? Like what Paul said, we I don't think we've had anybody with really a background in psychology talk to us before. Well, on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so. What did what did that look like? Like, did you go to? You said you went to school for psychology. So, did you ever have an intention of becoming a coach? Uh, no, actually, not at all. Uh, when I started, okay, my college journey was a little all over the place. I initially thought, and I think that most people's is, uh, but I initially thought that I kind of want to go go to school for graphic design. That was um, like my my senior year of high school. I, that, those are all my elective classes were graphic design, uh, web design classes, things like that. And then back then, which is hilarious to look at now, back then they weren't making a lot of money. And so I thought like, okay, well, I have to pay for, pay for college. I have to pay off college, all that kind of stuff. I don't know if this will make me enough money to do that. I didn't know if I loved it enough, but now graphic designers make so much money and web designers. So it's crazy how everything comes full circle. But so I, changed my major the first year to marketing because I was like, that's pretty basic. Um, I can get into business. I can do whatever I want with that basically. And realized I hated actually going to school for marketing. I always found people, it was, it was very dry and boring and I just couldn't get into it. Um, my minor was Spanish at the time and it ended up being Spanish fully for the four years. And then I switched after my first year of college, I switched to psychology because people are interesting. Who doesn't want to learn about the brain? And of course, the thing that attracts most people to psychology is the mental illness aspect, which would be like abnormal psychology classes. So that's what I started with. And then you get into it and you don't realize how many statistic classes you actually have to take. And that's not as fun. Like psychology statistics is not exciting at all. Um, but I, my major was in cognitive neuroscience, which is just a big fancy word for studying the brain how it works, um, you know, anxiety, depression, mental illness, all that kind of stuff. Um, I didn't necessarily have any aspirations of being a therapist or like owning my own practice or anything like that. So I'm not really sure why I got into it, aside from the fact that it was very interesting. Um, I don't think that the, the career path of being a therapist or a clinician is, you know, it's 12 plus years of schooling. And by the time that you're done with school, you're in your late forties or early fifties, and then you want to start your practice. And then you have so much school debt that you're basically working the first 10 plus years to pay off all your school debt just to get your practice going. And then you finally start making money. So it was never something that actually I wanted to open my own practice for, at least I didn't think that I did. So I have no legitimate reason why I went to school for psychology other than that I just really wanted to learn more stuff about it. And I paid a lot of money to learn more about psychology. Um, I actually, like through college and after college, I was a manager of supplement stores. So I like worked at GNC for a long time. Then I worked at Vitamin Shop. And actually, Vitamin Shop was my last job before I decided to quit and do coaching full time. So I was doing nothing of what my career was for, what my degree was for. But psychology does help me quite a bit in communicating with athletes, knowing how to commu uh, communicate remotely, in person, all that. So it wasn't a total loss. It does help me. I was about to say, you you didn't have any intentions of your college shaping your coaching career, but those are all, everything you went through was would be important as a coach, like marketing, graphic yep. design, <laughs> knowing how to speak Spanish, knowing psychology. Those are all valuable skills as a coach and build a, value, a big foundation for coaching. So it's uh, funny that you ended up as a coach with those skill sets that you built through college with no intentions of them panning out that way. Yeah, zero intention. So, <laughs> you know, I wasn't even um, I wasn't even powerlifting in college. I was a volleyball athlete for 14 years. And then uh, like, like an idiot in high school, 
when I could have potentially been doing more with my volleyball career, I messed up and made bad choices, hung around bad people. So I lost the opportunity to play volleyball at a collegiate level. Um, And then I didn't kind of go to the gym for a little while, got into the gym again, started doing bodybuilding. That really wasn't my thing. I don't want to eat that strict all the time. And I also don't want to, I don't want to get on stage in a bikini and, you know, that's not my thing. Like if that's, that's what people love, that's their thing. I, of course, I think it's awesome that people do that and they dedicate their time to it, but I had way more fun being strong. So I decided to pick up the barbell, start squatting, benching, deadlifting. And that wasn't even until, um, I want to say 2015 that I started powerlifting. So I was already working at supplement stores before powerlifting. And then I got into that and then, um, got into powerlifting, got into coaching through my first coach who was kind of mentoring me at the time and then kind of just took off from there. Like I've been coaching full-time without another job for a year and a half now. I was coaching before, been about two and a half years with a job and coaching, but now it's my full-time job. So did you get any kind of experience lifting weights in high school when you were a volleyball athlete? Or was that like a foreign thing still? It's different. Um, it, it's definitely not the same. You know, they have you do like my work. I, we always had two a days. And the first part of the day was in the swimming pool. So we would have to tread water for like 30 to 45 minutes, <laughs> which was the worst. That's like how it's, how you start your day. That's the worst part of your day. Um <laughs> Yeah. So when we would do tournaments, um, we would sometimes play like six to seven games back to back. So they would have you tread water just to be conditioned, I guess. It didn't really make sense to me. It just felt like a torture device. Uh, I don't, I don't really think that it was for anything other than just other than discipline. Like I have no idea why. uh, My first, yeah, the first part of the day was just in the pool, um, swimming laps and whatever. And then the second half of the day, was split between on the track. So we would do like sprints and suicides and things like that. And then go to the weight room and pretty much just do legs, like leg press, lunges, things like that. I don't know if like, I don't know if that's how I should have been trained for volleyball, like in college, like, or in, excuse me, in high school. I don't know if that's how I would have been trained going forward, but I don't know. I I mean, it's way better than what most people get in high school who are doing absolutely nothing. So the fact that they had you in the weight room at all is, uh, you know, progressive. Yeah, I did a lot of leg press. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Not as suboptimal as treading water. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think it's still better than doing nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, you know, that would, we would have practice, obviously, where we would do like practice games and um, drills and things like that, too. But outside of actually physically practicing the game, that was how I was trained for volleyball. So... How do you get good at volleyball when all you do is work out for three hours? (laughs) (laughs) So I had the advantage of my uncle, my great uncle coached a club volleyball team. Um, And so I started when I was really young, like he, he had me playing volleyball when I was like five and had no coordination to do whatever. And he had a sand volleyball pit in his backyard. So uh, he was, (laughs) he would tell me to like, when I was around eight or so, he would have me put on like two pound ankle weights and go in the sand pit and jump (laughs) and just jump over and over again um, until I could get close to reaching the top of the net, which as an eight year old, you're way too short to do that. So he was setting me up for failure there. (laughs) uh, So I practiced with him a lot and he coached like 17 and 18 year olds when I was younger. So I would go to like his practices with him and I would run the drills with them. So I more got good at that sport from being around it all the time and basically having no option. <laughs> That's what it always is, right? No <laughs> yeah. I, and I'm, I'm not really upset about not continuing playing because I don't think that I actually liked it as much as I thought I did. I think it was more of, this is what your family does. So you're forced to do this kind of thing, which is what I think most people kind of go through with sports as a young age. But yeah, it's interesting how far training has come in in the past, what, like 10 years or so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that any volleyball players now are doing what I was doing back then. So (laughs) yeah, thank goodness. And with your transition to powerlifting from bodybuilding, was that something that you decided you wanted to do? Or is that something your coach was like, hey, you might be pretty good at this? 
Um, it was slightly influenced by people that were in the gym at the same time as myself. Um, I lived in North Carolina at the time and I would, you know, like bodybuilders still lift heavy, right? Like, but it's just more for lots of reps. And I was doing weights for reps that were like pretty impressive for a girl that most people had seen. And I had a, I had a friend who came up to me and was like, you should, you should switch. You should do powerlifting instead. Like you'd be really good. And I was like, nah, I don't think so. Cause you know, when someone tells you what you should be doing, you don't want to do it automatically. You just, you just shut it down. So I was like, no, I don't, I don't think I want to do that. That's okay. And then I kind of, you know, my, my interest was peaked. So I looked into it a little bit more. I didn't know much about it other than like the basis of just squatting, benching and deadlifting. I didn't know, you know, anything behind how people trained and whatnot. So I looked into it and I was like, this is kind of interesting. And uh, after a little while I gave in and decided to kind of follow some random program that I found online, which actually ended up being the juggernaut system, like 12 week program. And that one didn't feel much different than bodybuilding for me because it was still sets of 10 for, <laughs> Such a you know, miserable program. <laughs> it, was, it was just, like you know, 10 sets of 10 of everything. <laughs> yeah. Like 10 sets of 10 on deadlifts. And I was yeah. like, well, this doesn't feel any different than bodybuilding. It's just heavier. Um, so that kind of at, in the beginning kind of pushed me away where I was like, I don't know if I want to do this. And then I talked to more people through Instagram because even though Instagram is kind of the worst. It's also kind of the best because it allows you to connect with people. And I connected with more people that were doing powerlifting and they were like, maybe you shouldn't run this program. Maybe you should look into this. And then that eventually led to my first coach. And then ever since then, it's kind of been uh, history as written, I guess. Paul, you have definitely persuaded a significant amount of people to compete in their first powerlifting meet, right? So I think it's something that pe- most people won't willingly subject themselves to right out of the gate. So what did that conversation look like for you, Riley, with like signing up for your first meet or competition? Oh, um, yeah. So it took me it took me about a year of training before jumping into it because, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm not ready. I can't do this. That's what everyone says. They're not ready. They need to they need to be stronger. They need to train more. And that's what I kept saying. And it actually took my friend Jenna, and who was my training partner at the time, she signed up for a meet and she was like, I'm signing you up for this meet too. <laughs> and so that's, that's I, usually how it works. <laughs> yeah, she had, she had already competed. Uh, I think she had done three or four meets by that time. So she was like, yeah, I'm signing you up for this meet. Like you're ready. It's fine. And so I didn't really have an option. And then I did it anyways. And I'm never, I always, I never like the meet prep up to the meet. But on meet day, I am so excited to be there. Like I have a, I always have fun on meet day. Um, I've had some bad meet day experiences, but for the most part, I'm always excited to be there. But I think the prep leading up to it, you're just so anxiety ridden. And you're like, am I even ready? I don't feel like I'm ready. Um, I feel like I should be hitting more. I'm, I'm not, even though I'm following the plan, you know, like everyone has so much anxiety in the prep leading up to it. And it seems like about four to five weeks out, everyone has like a mental breakdown <laughs> and it's just right on schedule. And they're like this, I'm not ready. I didn't, I didn't hit this number. I'm not ready. I don't know if I want to do this. And then you get to meet day and it's great. And you, you know, for the most part, you have a great day. You have fun competing against friends. You have fun competing with friends. You have fun seeing people. So I think the the process is more daunting than the actual outcome of it. Yeah, it sh- and it should be that way. That's why it's meat prep to yep. prep you for the meat, so that yep. you, when you get to the meat, you feel ready. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they, that that three to five weeks out phase is probably the shittiest you'll ever feel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we just yes. had a little mini mock meet, and we had maybe like twenty people do their first like quote unquote meet, and twenty people probably that have done three or four meets and the the freak out from week three, four weeks out, it was the same across the board. Like everybody like, Oh shit, I'm not ready. Like <laughs> I hit that number last week and I didn't hit it this week. So yep. like with that being such a common occurrence, how do you, how do you navigate that with your clients? Uh, kind of some of the conversations that you have around, around that. T- actually, actually, yeah, I actually just had that with um with a client who I've gone through three meat preps with. So we're not we're not new in relationship. Um and she she's about she's about four weeks out right now and her she did some bench work and uh last week she hit X number for X amount of reps. 
this week she actually hit uh, the same amount of reps for like five pounds less. And she's having a panic attack. She's like, I am so pissed off. I don't know what I'm going to be doing. This is, this is ridiculous. I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, and you know, my first question is always to ask not about the gym itself. My first question is always to ask about external factors because people don't take that into consideration a lot of times, you know, if they're very stressed with work, their relationship with something else, if they're not eating, they're not hydrating. Um, if they're not taking these into consideration, they don't tend to see how that can affect their training. And this client in particular is someone who works 12 to 16 hour days because she is a videographer. So she's standing on her feet, holding heavy equipment all the time. Um, they don't necessarily get scheduled breaks, you know, like she records, uh, commercials for like GM. She lives in Detroit. So she'll do a lot of like car commercials, uh, music video shoots, things like that. So she's not, it's not like she's eating every two to three hours, getting hydrated, doing all that. So when I ask, I always ask her what her external stress is. If she tries to tell me that it's nothing, I ask how much she's worked that week. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, so that gets to be, you know, oh, it's Wednesday and I've already worked 60 hours. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, that's, that's a big factor in those kind of things. And she's someone that I have more on a like RPE or RIR based system because of her work schedule. Um, instead of when I was trying to give her percent based work, I noticed that it was kind of beating her into the ground a little bit more mentally than physically. She could keep up physically, but if she had to adjust down like the 2.5 or 5% that I give her, it would crush her mentally for two to three weeks because she felt like she wasn't on track. So I switched her to like RP and RIR because, Hey, you're someone who works 16 hours a week, some days, and some days you don't, you know, some weeks you only work three days, some weeks you work seven days in a row, you know, her hours vary. So the RPE and RIR system works a little bit better for her with regulating and keeping her on track mentally. So I had to have that conversation with her of, hey, how much are you working? Are you controlling your external stress? Are you getting as much, um, you know, hydration and fuel as you need for this point of prep? And then I do have to remind her, hey, this is our third prep. We know what we're doing. We've done this before. Uh, You know, this isn't anything new. So I just kind of have to go through that reassurance checklist, I guess, with her. So that way she's like, okay, I'm not totally off track. I can do this. we're going to, it's going to be fine on meat day. You know, that's why I have to remind her is that that session isn't her meat. Her meat is in three to four weeks. That's when it counts. So I just have to reiterate that for her. Do you find yourself through these conversations with your clients, right? And like, you talk a lot about navigating self-doubt. What are some ways that you try and move people along, right? Cause it's like, no matter where somebody is, when they come to you, the goal is to get them to be more independent and, doubt themselves less. So what do those conversations look like? With like, It's it's a little bit different uh, for everyone because everyone communicates a little bit differently. Some people you kind of just need to tell some people you just need to flat out tell them like, hey, you're the way that you're talking to yourself isn't good. Let's clean it up kind of thing. And they're like, okay, you're right. And then they they perfectly get it. And they just like that straight to the point kind of communication. And some people you kind of have to make them realize it on their own. Um, you know, that will be me asking me asking more questions that ends up being what it is, is if someone comes to me and they send me their their deadlifts, and they don't like the way it looks. And I don't necessarily see anything too wrong with it. I'll ask them, well, why do you think that it looks this way to kind of get where their mindset is? And they're like, well, I saw I saw so and so deadlift more than me. And I'm like, okay, well, why are we why are we comparing your deadlift to this person's deadlift? And they're like, well, I, I would like to, I would like to be that strong one day. I'm like, okay, well then what is talking negatively about yourself? How is that helping you get to that point? And I don't think realize, I don't think people realize how much, how much the way you talk about yourself affects you. You know, it, it seems like a cheesy thing that people talk about, like positive mental attitude, things like that. But these are things that are scientifically proven to work. Like, nine and a half times out of 10, that if you talk to yourself in a positive way, you will generally um, start thinking of yourself in that positive light instead of thinking of yourself so negatively all the time. So a lot of, and I'm not anyone's therapist, right? So if someone has had past um, bad relationships, that's not necessarily my my thing to get into. And I don't really, you know, that's, that. I don't, that's not what I get paid for. 
you know, that's, that's someone else's job. So I, I make that boundary relatively clear um, that I'm not going to handle like their relationships. But, you know, if someone's been through past traumatic incidences, like that's going to carry over into every aspect of their life. So I do have to be very careful of trying not to open up that can of worms with a client because I don't, that's not what I do. I don't need to know about past bad relationships, but I do kind of, I can pick up on those things just based off of communication with people and the way that they talk about themselves. Like generally, if someone is apologizing to me a lot or doubting themselves a lot, it's because someone else has told them that they were doing things wrong a lot in their life. Um, or they were told that they weren't good enough or that kind of thing. Like if someone's apologizing to me, like, oh, I'm really sorry. My deadlifts look really bad today. It's like, you, you don't, you don't have to be sorry. Like that's, that's what I'm here for. You know, I'm here to help your deadlifts improve, but those little kind of indications help me recognize that people have been through these things before. And so I can tread a little bit lightly with them and, you know, kind of give them more positive encouragement. Um, I give them what, Trevor and I call a compliment sandwich. So like there'll be someone who the first part of the text back or the video back to them is like, okay, you did X, Y, Z really, really great. We still need to work on this, but this was really, really good. So you give them the, re- the affirmations and you sandwich those around the thing that they actually need to work on. I was going to say that, that's the opposite of what those Eastern European coaches do. <laughs> They Everyone know. just they yell a lot, right? <laughs> There's that video of Klokov like punching the guy in the face when he's doing like his jerk because he pushes his head too far forward. Nice. <laughs> he like goes to jerk and it's just like boom right in the no. face. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that guy got paid to punch, get punched in the face. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an interesting way to look at that. Now that's that's unique. I you know, and that's I have a couple clients uh, over who have been in like Australia, European countries and whatnot. And it's actually interesting because those clients don't tend to have as many mental breakdowns as we do here in the United (laughs) States, which is very interesting. I feel like that should be studied. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That has to say a lot about like societal norms. And I mean, that circles right back to that idea that, you know, your beliefs and expectations are going to shape your reality. And when, it's kind of almost normal in our society just to talk down to ourselves and be negative about, you know, pretty much everything. (laughs) Uh, And it's like, especially we live in Connecticut and it's like a Connecticut pride thing to be miserable and. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like the the amount of like negative self-talk that goes on is crazy. And, uh, we always talk about how, you know, your expectations and beliefs are going to shape your reality. And it's, there's a lot of like psych research in the psychology field about that, like you were mentioning, but even in the science field, that's like the whole idea behind placebos and nocebos is that, you know, these inert substances aren't actually doing anything. It's your beliefs and expectations that are. And a lot of times those um, outcomes are even more, uh, significant than like actual outcomes from regular training. Like people see more benefit from just believing they can do something than, you know, training for 12 weeks. So it's like, oh, if we 100%. can, yeah, <laughs> if we can um, start to change the way we talk about ourselves and change our beliefs and expectations, we can probably uh, do a lot of things that we never thought we were capable of. And I think that's, something you see a lot in sports when people like break world records, like, like nobody ever deadlifted a thousand pounds. One person deadlifts a thousand pounds and all of a sudden like six other people do it like the four minute mile. Nobody, nobody even dreamt of running a four minute mile. And then one guy ran a four minute mile. He didn't even do it legitimately. He did it with like pacers and stuff and broke all the rules. But as soon as he did it, like 12 other people ran a four minute mile. So it's like that those beliefs and expectations are, way 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 more important than i think most people give credit to so i'm glad it's something you're talking about (laughs) yeah i I try to talk about it often and i mean i'm not i i'm not perfect in these things either i'm just like i struggle with negative self-talk and like belief like believing in myself just like everyone else does um i just recognize it a little bit more than most people do. But I do agree that like society kind of messes us up in that because self-deprecating humor is like 
everyone's favorite type of humor, you know, like it's, it's cool to be like, how are you doing? Oh, I'm terrible. Great. And everyone's like, ah, hilarious. And you're like, no, I'm really terrible. Yeah. Hilarious. (laughs) You know, so I don't, I don't know when that became like the, the coolest form of humor or whatever, but it is. And people kind of keep perpetuating that. And, you know, powerlifters as a stereotype don't have the most positive, sort of outlook you know like we're all supposed to be like unhealthy stupid and like you know dumb as a box of rock like it just it's not it's not a good stereotype for the most part like outside looking in you know like no one takes care of themselves um you know they they just lift really heavy all the time they don't have any brains they don't they don't follow any program they go out they just eat donuts and it's just like it's not a good positive image i think for people and I do think that it, that's changing a little bit with the being more uh, like respectable people talking about how it's cool. It's cool to be healthy in a power. Like it's cool to be able to walk up a flight of stairs and power lift, you know, like that's, that's a cool thing. But I think with the belief with seeing like what you're talking about with someone running a four minute mile or deadlifting a thousand pounds, how people see it and they realize they can do that. That's also a catch 22 because some people will believe it. And that's what we kind of have to figure out is like, some people will believe that they'll see that it can be done. And they'll be like, I can do that too. I just have to work really, really hard at it. But then other people will do that and be like, I'm never going to get there. Screw my career. I'm never going to get there. I'm not even going to try hard, you know? So it's like two very, very different sides of the coin of people. So it's, it's trying to figure out how to um, continue to push those people that know that they can do that eventually and keep, you know, promoting their positive self-talk and also changing the people who think, okay, well, I'll never be able to get there because I'm so far off from this, changing their belief to, you know, being more positive and saying like, okay, I can do this with enough hard work. But I think, I think the problem link, the linked problem in there is like the instant gratification sort of thing, right? You know, you, if you just started powerlifting three months ago and you get on Instagram and you start following powerlifters who have been powerlifting for eight to 10 years and they out total you by 800 pounds, you're like, well, I want to total what they totaled. I just started three months ago. I can do this too. And then you start working hard and you realize that, oh, in order for me to gain that total, I'm going to have to work for the same amount of years that they've been working for to get that. And I think with social media, the downfall there is the instant gratification. You know, you can post your training and you immediately get 500 likes and people telling you how strong you are and how great you are and whatever. So people kind of lose sight of how long it actually takes to get good at this sport and how long it takes to add five pounds to your total once you've reached a certain point. You just brought up like five awesome yeah. points. <laughs> about to say the same thing. <laughs> the first one that I remember from like, if we try and go in order, was that you had mentioned like the stereotype of powerlifters being sort of like fat and unhealthy and struggling with daily tasks and always injured. And this past weekend, Jared Feather won his IFPB Pro Card. And so he's working with Mike Isertel. And they were talking about how, or they made a post about how properly applying science and research led him to where he is rather than, you know, some of the, I think, behaviors that are typically associated with pro bodybuilders and maybe uncontrolled (laughs) usage. (laughs) What do you mean? That never happens to bodybuilders. People never take way too much. Well, it's like... (laughs) How many pro bodybuilders and pro powerlifter? Well, I guess you can call them pro powerlifters and pro strongmen. Uh, like die when they're like forty years old before you have to realize, like, hey, maybe it's not cool to walk around at three hundred and fifty pounds, slamming mad drugs and painkillers to numb all the pain that you're pushed yourself through and it's the memes it's all yeah. the trend memes people are like oh <laughs> people are like oh trend is cool so i'm going to take a lot of it <laughs> yeah something that wasn't even made for human consumption <laughs> right <laughs> right yes um, and even before that you talked about um rewind it even more is you talked about you not you admitting that you're not perfect at these things either about you know, self-talk and being negative about yourself. And something that I see you say a lot on Instagram that like, you know, resonates with me and something that I 
talk to my clients about talk to the clients about a lot is uh, like do better. And it's like we all have our faults, but we can all do a little bit better each day and try. Mm -hmm. And if we do everything we can to try and make ourselves just a little bit better each day, you know, over long periods of times, you can accomplish really amazing and great things. And I think that combined with that talk about instant gratification is where people get held up is right. Is it's not very sexy to try and put like 0.01% better every day when people want to see that they want to see that 10% jump, that 15% jump. And it's like, that can't happen unless you put in the work day in and day out and constantly try to do better. Yeah. Well, everyone's only posting their highlight reel. So you only see the cool stuff. You don't see, you don't see the off season work in the four sets of eight. You see the max single that they went off program for, or, (laughs) uh, you know, like in, in my realm, because I'm, I do apply conjugate principles. And so I see people that are like, I'm running conjugate because I have eight bands and 17 chains on my empty bar, empty barbell, (laughs) (laughs) you know? So it's, it's, it, you know, with the, with the whole do better thing, people aren't applying that in the right way necessarily. Like they're only thinking about to training. So if you tell someone to do better, they're like, well, I'm just going to train harder. And I'm like, maybe, but maybe that's not exactly what you're sucking at. Like maybe what you suck at isn't the training aspect. Maybe what you suck at is your nutrition or how do you talk to yourself or what you do on your rest days or like, you know, it's not just applying it to training in order to get better. Like, I don't think that people understand that it's multifactorial. So you have to get better at hydrating. You have to get better at nutrition. You have to get better at how you talk to yourself, how you plan your day and how you train. You know, training is kind of the easy part for most people. So if you tell someone to do better, um, they should not just think, okay, deadlift more, squat more, (laughs) bench more. They should think, what else can I be doing outside the gym to be better? I think with the population that we work with, a lot of them are very new to the gym. We are in a space where we might be somebody's first introduction to training. And so there are ways that we will slowly bring about these conversations when somebody's having an off day to start to highlight like, Hey, these things matter and you should definitely start to, to pay attention to them. So yeah, I think that's important to highlight to everyone that training and our like sessions don't just exist on their own. Like our entire life is influencing them. Yeah. Your, your powerlifting total is more than just your hour and a half to two hours that you're at the gym. Or even just like, not just powerlifting, but even your strength improvement is more than just the one to two hours you're at the gym four to five days a week. Yeah. You're spending much more time outside of the gym than you are inside the gym. So those hours matter just as much, if not more, than the ones that you're spending in the gym. But it's not very sexy to talk about sleep and stress management and, uh, like self-talk and those topics because everybody wants to talk about programming and lifting because that's the fun stuff. Uh, well, it's but, the easier answer too. Yeah. Yeah. It's right. straightforward. There's not as much nuance to it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and yeah. there's the instant gratification part that you just brought up that relates to training. Oh, I can change this in my program is a lot easier than I need to stop fucking around and like not getting eight <laughs> hours of sleep a night. Yeah. Yeah, no one, those things are much harder to do than your programming. So, you know, like managing stress for most people, because people don't know how to manage. We talked about octopuses at the beginning, right? When they get stressed out, they eat their arms. Like metaphorically, that's what humans kind of do when they get stressed <laughs> out. Is instead of Instead of kind of trying to address the stress, they would rather you know, chew off their own arm and make things more complicated for themselves. You know, we all have the power to change our schedules or who we're around or change our environment. We all have the, that ability to do that, but yet people would rather kind of commiserate and live in that misery of stress because that's what they're used to a little bit more comfortable with. So they live in that and then they don't realize why they they can't sleep or why their appetite is always off or why their, their training isn't progressing. And it's because they're not managing any of the stress in the day to day that they have control over. Like people have control over these things. They just don't want to do them because it's hard. Yeah. And there's a lot of research 
on that exact topic showing like people's adaptation to training is like literally completely blunted when they come into a training block with higher levels of stress and a lack of stress coping mechanisms. Um, so if you are, you know, constantly stressed to the gills, you're not going to see any progress in the gym. And I think with the current, you know, state of the world right now, we're seeing that more and more as where people are, you know, abnormally stressed and it's affecting their training and they don't not making that connection. And uh, some, sometimes that's a conversation that needs to be had is, is that all of these things outside of the gym are going to influence what you do in the gym. And, you know, there's going to be times where you have to pull the training dial back and kind of coast because the life stressors are higher and you need to put your priority into kind of managing those before you can go back to hitting training hard and actually see progress. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have a couple clients who live in like the bigger cities uh, that have been really affected by 2020s shenanigans. Um, you know, like people that live in Philly, people that live in, um, I have a, I have a client who is in Omaha and she's like, they're overwhelmed in like the, the COVID unit right now. Um, so I have clients that live in these big cities to where all of these bad things kind of keep happening and compounding. And I can always tell based off of their training when something else has happened that the news didn't report yet or something, you know, like that they either failed a rep or they just couldn't make it through the session or they had to tone everything back. And, you know, those kind of sessions, I just have to tell the client, like, you, you kind of just need to take the L and like move on from it. You know, like if you, it, it was a bad session. Okay. That's all right. It may not be a bad session tomorrow, but if you keep thinking that the rest of this week will be bad because today was bad, then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and the rest of the sessions will be bad. So that's, that's something that I feel like I'm saying all the time. I'm like, just take the L, move on wipe short-term memory, just wipe it out, pull it out, you know, and keep moving forward from that because 2020 has not been, not been very nice to people, their stress management, their training, all that. So having a short-term memory in situations like this is probably the best thing that you can have. Well, I mean, I think something that we both talk a lot about is at the end of the day, putting in effort uh, over a long period of time is what's going to make you see the most progress mm -hmm. and it's that consistency over a long period of time that is the most important factor out of everything and if you're consistently training for a long period of time you're bound to have some pretty horrible training sessions and yes. if you can't just move past them you're gonna you're gonna affect a lot more training sessions thereafter so you do really have to learn how to take the l because i don't know probably like 15 to 30% of your sessions are going to suck and there's no way around it. <laughs> and that's just yeah. part of the game. Like you can't perform, you know, to your highest level all the time. Um, and you can't just add five pounds every week or else we'd all squat a thousand pounds and it wouldn't <laughs> <Right>. be fun. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that, that, and that's usually what I say is that, you know, that someone's like, Oh, well I'm, I'm bummed because I have so many things that I have to work on. And I'm like, that's the, it's kind of the beauty of training, right? If you were good at everything, why you wouldn't need a coach and you wouldn't be, you'd be world champion right by now. Like if you were just good at everything and everything just came easily, you know, if you don't want to work hard, like if you're in powerlifting, you don't want to work hard and like get better and learn what's optimal for you. You kind of are in like, you're kind of in the wrong sport for that. But that's what I, I feel like I am saying that to clients a lot. I'm like, if you had nothing to work on, it would be very, very boring. And just having, just by having something to work on doesn't mean that you suck or you're weak. It just means you have opportunities to be stronger. Like it's just that, it's that kind of belief that you need to change it from, oh, I'm really, really weak and I have all these things that are wrong and I'm really bad at deadlifting and my squat pattern doesn't make sense and all this kind of stuff. And if you would change that narrative to all of these are opportunities in order to improve my total, they would be a lot better for it but it's just kind of trying to get them to shift that thought process, which is the most challenging part. And for some people it's easier than others. You know, some, for some, it's just pointing out like, Hey, 
this isn't this isn't a negative. Me me giving you an opportunity to improve is a positive. So once you learn to improve upon this, you will be better. It's getting people that don't think that way to think that way. But that's the challenging part. Yeah, I think through this powerlifting meet that we just had or mock meet and like I'm thinking specifically of people who are newer to powerlifting, but like I we have a few who are new but already very good. And so through coaching and like the in-person training that we're doing, I remember having a conversation with one specific individual, actually a couple. And, you know, it's when I'm starting to highlight all these things can affect their performance because they're having a bad day. I just say like, you know, you're strong enough for this to matter now, or like now you're getting advanced enough where these are things that we have to start to think about. Because when somebody's in, they've been training for less than a year, you know, and you have a, a smaller woman deadlifting close to 300 pounds, like that's, pretty awesome for less than 12 months of training and so to just say like hey you know these are things that you're gonna have to start to pay attention to moving forward i think flips that from like we were talking about with the negative self-talk to now it's positive it's something that they can do to improve their performance rather than like oh this went poorly yeah and um you know trevor and i have our own podcast too and actually last night we just talked about like blinders and how like horse race uh, like horses in horse races they wear blinders so that way they're not distracted by the other horses in the lanes next to them and if if we as humans could learn how to have blinders instead and focus on ourselves instead of being so focused on what everyone else is doing like you're talking about someone who's deadlifting 300 pounds that is more impressive than the norm but yet you see people on instagram and whatever that are deadlifting five and six hundred pounds and you automatically instead of taking into account training age instead of taking into account physical age or anything like that people are just like well i'm not deadlifting five or six hundred pounds yet so i'm i'm mediocre and i'm not very good and it's like no here you're already well above the norm you just are looking at the outlier right now or looking at that someone who has been doing this for double and triple the amount of time as you so if humans could learn how to have blinders and focus more on themselves, they'd have more energy to put into improving their lives rather than putting all their energy and focus onto someone else's performance in their training and everything. Yeah. And I want to talk about that, but before we go <laughs> on to that, uh, I think, you know, that all comes back to that idea of instant gratification mm-hmm. and helping people realize that the things we value most in life and the things that bring us the most joy aren't a result of something that gave us instant gratification. Everything worthwhile is uh, always a result of some sort of delayed gratification where you've had to put in work over a period of time to get to what you want. And, you know, people, you see that all the time and kind of the things that people celebrate the most or find the most joy, whether it be work related, but, uh, or life related or athletic related. If we just got there without the work, the, the joy at the end, wouldn't be as great. So, you know, that's what makes powerlifting so addicting is that, that you can start to, it starts to teach you that, like that delayed gratification and you can kind of carry it over into the rest of your life. And, know that if you put in the work, you're going to have a better result than if you just coasted coasted by. Yeah, the process is definitely like the most uh, important part, I feel, and which is really cheesy. You know, people like trust the process, enjoy the process, you know, all those other like hashtags and whatever. But it really like the pursuit of it is really the most exciting part. And I think that, you know, in this sport, we see a lot of people come in like really hot guns blazing where they start taking records like within their first year or two and they kind of fizzle out because they didn't have to enjoy the process. You know, like they started out at the top and they maybe didn't understand how to enjoy like the delayed gratification because they were getting instant gratification immediately. And those people tend to come and go like, you know, we'll see. I haven't been in the sport for very, very long at all compared to a lot of people, but I've already seen lifters come and go because they started out really, really strong. And then they didn't know how to quantify that. So then they just kind of fizzled out because they were like, well, I have to work hard now, you know, and that's a personality type where someone's just not going to want to work hard. And there's really nothing that you can do to change that. Like that's just kind of, they're kind of set in their ways and that sort of thing. Um, But yeah, I do agree that the people that are 
the people that are okay with the delayed gratification instead of the instant gratification are always going to be the ones that tend to do a little bit better because they're okay with it being five years before they hit their goal instead of five months. Well, it's the classic psychology experiment with the the kids and the M&Ms or the marshmallows. Or the marshmallows, yep. How valid <laughs> it is, but I yeah. heard that before. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a fun test. Um, I think I want to say that it ended up being like 80% of those kids were the ones to take the marshmallow beforehand instead of like they went for the instant gratification rather than the delayed gratification. But that is supposed to express the personality type, you know, and like that kind of will carry them throughout the rest of their rest of their life. Like if you were the kid who waited for the delayed gratification, you're probably um, maybe a little bit more type A, a little bit more willing to work uh, a little bit harder and okay with the delayed gratification and the people that uh, you know, there's some sort of correlation there between the ones with instant gratification and the ones that kind of fall into um, bad traps in high school and like get into trouble and things like that. It's really interesting how delayed gratification, instant gratification actually can dictate whether or not you're a troublemaker kind of yeah. thing. They, yeah, they followed up that those kids like throughout the rest of their high school and college career and the ones that waited like all did better in school and had better SAT scores and the ones that didn't wait did worse. So yep. it is uh, super interesting. And uh, with, if our goal is to kind of train for the rest of our lives, because, you know, lifting weights has all of these amazing health benefits out, you know, outside of the sport of powerlifting, being able to really fall in love with the process is the is the only way to kind of create a long-term adherent adherence to lifting weights. Cause I don't know, at a certain point we're all going to start to regress and it's kind of a fight fight to, to keep what we have. So if you can't fall in love with the process before that happens, there's no way you're going to continue to train as you get older. Um, now, and you have so, to find other ways to win to other ways than just your total Right. You know, people are always only looking for what their total is, but like, you know, volume PRs aren't sexy or something like, but those are important too. Uh, you know, even moving, moving better or not being in pain, like those are all PRs also for your training. You know, if you spent a year injured and you come back from your injury and are able to get close to what your pre-injury um, lift was, then that's that's a way to win also rather than just saying, okay, well, I added 10 pounds on my total this year. So it's, it's quantifying other ways to win other than just like the standard. I think a difficult one for people to accept or come to terms with is like maybe body weight PRs, right? It, yeah. Your total definitely suffers if you lose weight, but if you are healthier as a result of that weight loss, it's probably worth it to not have the extra 10 or 15 pounds on your bench. It's hard to think that way. And I can say that from someone from experience because my, I used to compete at 181 and, um, I was, you know, like after weigh-ins, I would be weighing around 185. So that's what I trained at was 185. And my best total weighing around then was 1102. I just competed, uh, recently and I weighed in at 161. And so that's a big, massive decrease. And I only weighed 164 on meat day because my body just doesn't want to bloat. It just is not very good at that. So I only weighed 164 and I only totaled 34 pounds less than I did when I was weighing 185. So I'm 20 pounds less and I totaled 40 pounds less, but yet I was still in the beginning. I when it first happened, I was pretty upset because I was like, I totaled less that sucks. And you know, you just, it's hard to not get yourself to think about that. But then I was like, Oh, okay. I, I weigh a lot less than what I first did. So I'm not as mad about it or as upset about it because 40 pounds is something that I can make up. And I went seven for nine. So had I hit my thirds, I would have totaled the exact same. So it's like, it's like, it, it sucks in that moment. You're not going to be able to stop yourself from thinking about the fact that you did worse because that's what we look at. We just look at the number. We don't look at the other factors with it. But after, you know, a couple of days of reflection, I was like, okay, it's not so bad. <laughs> it's 10% less body weight for what yeah. is arguably an 
like literally no strength difference, just a, a meat day difference. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I did not, I did not fight for my thirds on squat and deadlift. We can say that. <laughs> so that was a mental thing. Yeah. I think the last thing I want to try and touch on quickly here as we're kind of running out of time uh, is something you brought up before a couple of minutes ago was about kind of how, and it's something that you talk about on your Instagram a lot is about how people have these like self limiting factors and, you know, people tend to kind of hold themselves back and not even realize it. Uh, so what are kind of some examples of things people do? I mean, we've been talking about mindset a lot, but, you know, outside of mindset that people do that kind of limit themselves and limit their progress in the weight room. Uh, a lot of people, well, like it's, it's the non-sexy things that we talk about, right? Like they, they're like, oh, well, I never have any good training sessions. And it's because they decide to stay up until 3am playing a video game or 3am fighting with their partner that they shouldn't be with or doing something that is non-productive to the rest of their day. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it is mindset, you know, people saying, oh, I'll never be able to do this instead of saying, I can't do this yet. Let me do these things to get to it. But I think a lot of it comes from uh, it's not necessarily sabotaging their training sessions. It's sabotaging their lives outside of the training sessions that affect it. So they they don't sleep. They skip meals because they're too stressed out or they they don't prioritize meal prepping on their day off because they'd rather sit around and watch Netflix all day or, you know, they're behind on their work because instead of instead of doing their programs, speaking as a coach, instead of doing their programs, they decided they wanted to watch movies instead, you know, so there's no, there's no order of prioritization there as far as what needs to get done in a timely manner. So I think that that people, what people do outside the gym restricts them more than what they do inside of the gym is what I see generally, you know, like, like I mentioned in the beginning, that's, that's the first thing that I will ask if someone has a bad training session, like how'd you sleep? How'd you eat? How's your stress before I even attack the training session? And I think that if more people started looking at themselves that way, they'd probably stop limiting themselves on so much on what they're able to do. You heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's great. You know, it's like, what did you do to prepare for the session? Like, what did you do to set yourself up for success in this session? And if they look at you and tilt their head. (laughs) That's usually what I get. They're like, I showed up. What do you mean? I'm here, guys. Like now, it's your job to make me better. <laughs> yeah. at, at some point, though, like you talked earlier about taking L's, like at, in the beginning, just showing up is enough to to earn the W. But I think yep. the more the more advanced your goals are, the more advanced you are, the more you have to do to not take the L. Yeah, yeah, and like Paul mentioned, it's ten to 50, you know, fifteen, twenty, sometimes thirty percent of your training sessions are going to be trash. <laughs> <laughs> you just kind of have to, yeah. you just kind of got to deal with it. <laughs> you are the more trash training sessions you're going to have. Yep. Yeah. It <laughs> makes those good training sessions even better though. <laughs> uh, 100%. Yes. A <laughs> hundred shots and there's like three that make you want to play again. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly that. You just don't show up. Oh. Yeah. Very cool. That's a, I think that's a clean spot to wrap this up. Unless you have any more octopus facts, you can. <laughs> they have four hearts. All right. That's a, didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's all I got. <laughs> they can well, fit through anything. They can, yeah. they can morph their bodies through like any hole. It's, They're so basically Play-Doh. just the coolest thing. Yeah. So <laughs> research them. They're cool. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Thank you very much for some time. I know it's earlier for you than it is for us. So yeah, <laughs> I'm oh, glad we were. No, I'm in Florida. <laughs> oh, like, all right, I'm going to edit that out. <laughs> it's the same that. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't say anything. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, thank you guys for having me on. But, uh, of course. You have uh, a couple things that you do. You have the, what, oh, yeah. the accessory show. You yep. Have, uh, uh, Trevor and I have the accessory show. Um, I do social media. Training. Uh, yep. Habitual strength is my coaching. Uh, I don't have like a separate Instagram for that. So that's all just on my Instagram, which is at Riley Presnell. Um, I work with subject zero and I do their social media. Um, I think Paul knows that we have some cool stuff coming in 2021 with a few other notable coaches. So that will be fun to kind of release. So yeah, 
stay tuned for 2021, which will hopefully be better than 2020. Keep your eyes peeled for some, something special coming from the Riley, Jaffe, Toadie, Paul O'Neill group. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Setting up. <laughs>